At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll talk about why Joe Biden is the wrong candidate to take on Donald Trump. D.D. Guttenplan, the magazine's editor, will explain why The Nation has published an anti-endorsement. Also, this week the Supreme Court is hearing arguments about the fate of DACA residents, whether those young people brought here as small children should be sent to countries they have no memories of. But why should that be decided by the nine justices of the Supreme Court? In a democracy, shouldn't that be decided democratically? That's what Tom Hartman says, not just about DACA, but about all of judicial review by the Supreme Court. We'll speak with him later in the show. But first, talking politics and history with Sherrod Brown. Of course, he's the senior senator from Ohio, first elected in 2006. He was reelected in 2018. He won by seven points in a state Hillary Clinton had lost by eight points just two years earlier. He's got a new book out now. It's called Desk 88, Eight Progressive Senators Who Changed America. It's an honor and a pleasure to say, Sherrod Brown, welcome to the program. Thank you. I appreciate being on. Well, your book is titled Desk 88. That's your desk on the Senate floor. The book is about the people who were seated there before you, notable progressives, including Bobby Kennedy, George McGovern, and Hugo Black. Hope we have a chance to talk about all of them. But I'd like to start at the end of Desk 88, where you talk about your own reelection in 2018. You won by seven points in a state that Hillary Clinton had lost by eight points just two years earlier. So we have a tremendously important question about that. What are the lessons of Ohio from Hillary in 2016 to you in 2018? We knew we had to win one out of seven Trump voters or something like that. And I was, I'm a progressive and I, I never compromise on gun safety. And I don't, I don't, we'll never sell out to the NRA. I don't compromise on on marriage equality. I've supported marriage equality for 20 plus years. I, I don't compromise on, on choice. Uh, and I've been my whole career strongly pro-choice, but you need, you need to talk to voters. You need to talk about the dignity of work. It means honoring and respecting all work, whether you punch a clock or swipe a badge or work for tips, whether you're raising kids or taking care of aging parents. And when I say fight for workers, I don't think just of the white male firefighter. I think of people that work as clerks at an insurance company and people that 
that prepare food in cafeterias and people that work construction and people that work in small manufacturing uh, or work in an office setting. And, and if Democrats run a campaign, seeing the world through the eyes of workers and then govern that way and plan to govern that way and make that contrast with a president who has betrayed workers. This president has betrayed workers in the Middle West and betrayed our allies in the Middle East. And every day, the Democratic candidates need to talk about Trump's betrayal of workers while we talk about the dignity of work. That will peel off enough Trump voters and excite new voters enough, I think, to to win not just my part of the country, but to build a huge electoral college majority. In your book, you also talk about the 2000 campaign, Al Gore challenging uh, George W. Bush. Tell us about the conversation you had at the Ford plant in Avon Lake. Yeah, I was sitting around uh, just drinking coffee in the cafeteria during a during a break for the for the workers, and there are I don't know half dozen, eight nine people around, and they were all voting for Gore, except one UAW member there said he was voting for Bush, and they and they so I said why, and he said, well, Gore wants to take my gun. And the guy next to me turned to him and he said, well, Sherrod has the same positions on guns as, as, as Gore does. And he said, yeah, but Sherrod fights for workers and fights for us in the workplace. And I think that's the issue that, I, you know, I know I know in some smaller towns and among some people, they don't like my F from the NRA. And I know they don't like my positions on marriage equality and, and choice. But if I'm there fighting for their kids, fighting for their ability to to send their child, send their young, their teenage or their 18-year-old off to community college or Ohio State, or um, I'm talking about their health care if they have a pre-existing condition, in many cases, that that will be their vote determinant. We vote because this guy fights for us. And at work, this guy fights for our health insurance. This guy fights for our kids going to college or trade school. George McGovern is featured in your book. He's one of the people who occupied your desk before you arrived. Of course, he's a hero of ours. He was right about pretty much everything, especially the war in Vietnam. But he's the biggest loser in the history of modern American presidential elections. For those who don't remember 1972, when he ran against Nixon, he carried only Massachusetts and the District of Columbia when Nixon beat McGovern that year, it was really much worse than Trump beating Hillary. Hillary, of course, won the popular vote by almost 3 million votes. McGovern lost by almost 18 million votes. You worked on the McGovern campaign. You were, I guess, a teenager at the time. Tell us about that that campaign. Yeah, well, it, it was a disaster from the beginning to the end. I wasn't smart enough to know that. I thought it was a close race until they counted the votes. So what do I know at that point? But I, I, I laughed about, as you were talking, only in that uh, story in the book about McGovern sitting down with Mondale. Mondale had just lost in 84, not quite by as much, but Mondale had carried only Minnesota, his home state in Washington. And um, McGovern, McGovern was talking to Mondale soon after the 84 race. This had been 12 years since McGovern lost. And Mondale asked him, how long does it take to get over this, George? And George McGovern says, I'll let you know when I do. <laughs> and because that, that kind of loss, I mean, we can laugh now, but yeah. that kind of loss has got to be just earth-shaking and shattering and scarring probably. I mean, I think McGovern was scarred by it maybe the rest of his life. I don't know. Um, he had other tragedies. I mean, his daughter died way too young. And so I'm sure he had, he had other tragedies, other problems, and we all do. But 
that campaign, I remember the idealism of it. What McGovern had in common, as I said in the book with Goldwater, my the two things. One is my dad very improbably voted for Goldwater in 64 and voted for McGovern in 72. Not many people had that journey. Right? Wow. But the other thing they had in common is they both they both brought a lot of new people into the political system. And Chip O'Neill said dozens and dozens of House members, people serving in Congress, came out of the McGovern campaign and that was their first time really involved. And so there there was there is still a positive lasting impact even even in a catastrophic loss. You describe union members, especially the more conservative, overwhelmingly white and male members of the building trades voting for Nixon instead of McGovern in 72. Sounds like a foreshadowing of Trump in 2016. Is that fair? Yeah, it's fair, but it's it was more pronounced in McGovern. I mean, as you point out, McGovern lost by 18 million, I think was the number you said. I And, you know, Hillary won the popular vote by 3 million in large part because of your state, but nonetheless, and there is a smaller number of union members now, but McGovern didn't do well among union members, but did pretty badly among every segment of the population. Hillary, Hillary probably won, if you can dig down, you don't always know this, but Hillary probably won among union members. But the unions by now are much more diverse than they were in McGovern's days. I mean, even the trades, the most conservative and the probably the whitest of the unions, maybe the trades and the firefighters, even there you see a number of people of color. You see more women. There were very few women in the trades or in the big industrial unions in McGovern's day. So that really begs the question. This book, this book is is about eight white men and everybody held, ever, ever held my desk was a man as far as we can tell from the names we can see scrawled in there or not scratched in the desk. So somebody's writing this book about the last eight senators that held it. And a few hundred years from now, somebody writes about the eight senators that held it since I do, since I have, um, I think you'll see significantly more women and people of color. And I think you'll see a more progressive Senate because if the Senate looks more like California, if the Senate looks more like um, our country overall, you'll see these progressive eras I talk about last, last longer and be deeper and that's that's only spells good for the country. Well, I think my favorite chapter in your book is the first one about Hugo Black from Alabama, elected to the Senate in 1926. He was a member of the Ku Klux Klan, and this is a wonderful story about how a Klansman changed his mind and changed sides in the great battles of the 1930s. How did that happen? Well, it happened because he was mostly an opportunist. The world to black in those days, 1926, understanding that people of color were simply not voting in Alabama with maybe exceptions of you could count on your fingers and toes, if any exceptions. And he saw the world divided into groups. He called them the big mules and the little mules. And the big mules were the um, power companies, the coal companies, the electric, the, um, the steel companies, the mining companies. That was one group. The other group was the little mules, and they were – they were many, many Klansmen in that group, and he could not have chosen the big mules. So he said, he said, later, I would have chosen to join any group that helped me get votes. So he let his ambition flip itself over on an ugly, racist underbelly. He did things as a young man he shouldn't have done by joining the Klan. But coming almost full circle, if you can ever put that behind you and, and ever be forgiven for being a member of the worst terrorist group in American history— then he, in 1956, 
I believe it was right after a year or two after Brown v. Board of Education, which he was involved in the unanimous decision to, to finally put the court on the side against segregation because he was burned in effigy at his law school in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. And he was a great civil libertarian. So I, you give credit for change. It's hard to forgive somebody ever that belonged to the Klan. But Black, in some ways, he may have spent, I, I didn't know him. I can't, I can't analyze him psychologically, but he may have, may have spent his whole life trying to make up for that, that terrible decision he made to join them. And he followed an unusual course after he became one of the leading supporters of the New Deal in the mid-1930s. He was appointed to the Supreme Court, where he was an extremely important figure. Yeah, that's right. He was Roosevelt's, probably Roosevelt's favorite Southern senator. He, he had a major impact. He was always a populist, but real populism, I will always contend, can't be racist. But he was a real populist in fighting for, quote, the little guy, even though it was only in his early days for the little white guy, if I could say it that way. But he helped to write the collective bargaining, the 30 to 40 hour work week. He actually introduced a bill for a 30 hour work week and he compromised it to 40. And that's what we still have. And um, that's made a huge difference in, in our economy and in worker rights and in wages. Another senator who occupied your desk before you, desk 88, was Bobby Kennedy. He was elected to the Senate from New York shortly after his older brother was assassinated. And he's another great example of someone who changed sides, although in a different way from Hugo Black. As a young man, he had worked for Joe McCarthy. And as attorney general, he's the one who approved FBI wiretaps on Martin Luther King. But that's not where he ended up in 1968. What explains his transformation? Well, again, I, I, I don't engage in psychoanalysis. I don't know, except that his brother's assassination clearly was both earth-shattering and, and, and I assume made him re-examine his values, his place in the world, all that. He had always been the, you know, the little brother, the guy that looked out for the big brother and did things for him that was the operator for all that. And then he all of a sudden is thrust into being the, the patriarch, more or less, of this family. And Ted Kennedy certainly took that role later. Um, and I think the other thing that happened is he saw peace. He was a really privileged kid. You know, well, very wealthy Irish Catholic kid from Boston that that had every advantage in life uh, except the you know obviously the deaths of of two of his family members, three of his family members, I guess. But he went to Southern California and saw uh, saw farm workers. Went to Mississippi and uh, saw the poorest, maybe the poorest areas of the country, the Delta, and it really changed him. And Marion Wright Edelman tells a story when she was Marion Wright as a young Yale Law School graduate. Peter Edelman, who she later married, came to that community with Bobby Kennedy and as Senator Kennedy in those days. And Marion didn't really much like him because she didn't like his brother's appointments to the court, John's appointments to the court. He'd, he'd appointed conservative Southern, in many cases, segregationists. She didn't expect to like Bobby, and she saw him interact with these poorest, some of the poorest, least privileged people in, in the country, and it changed her view of him. And she later married <laughs> the Kennedy's staff guy there, but um, she changed her, you know, and so Kennedy, Kennedy is a, as, as we all are, I mean, Kennedy's a complicated guy. Kennedy, Kennedy was a complicated man and in his evolution, but, but my, my wife always says that when somebody, you want somebody to change and they do, you can't keep pointing to their past. You've got to embrace that change. 
And I mean, working for McCarthy is pretty bad. Being a KKK member is really bad. But each of these characters, as did Al Gore Sr., who voted against civil rights in 64 and went down as a victim of Nixon's um, Southern strategy and his unrelenting attacks on Gore in his 1970 race, because Gore had stood up to Nixon on appointing two Southern, very conservative, maybe racist judges. And Gore, Gore lost his election over that. So one of the, the lessons here is nobody in elective office should be, everybody should be willing to lose for a principal. And I, I'm not sure how many of us are in that category. I also want to ask you about something from your own biography that you write about in the book. You were a student at Yale in May 1972 when Nixon announced the uh, mining of the Haiphong Harbor in North Vietnam. This was infuriating escalation of the war for those of us in the anti-war movement. You describe joining a demonstration of Yale students, but you say something about this demonstration didn't feel right. Tell us about that. Yeah, I, I was, um, I mean, I was a young, I was, well, I was a college student, and I was, grew up with some, more than some. I mean, I wasn't a rich kid. My dad was a family doctor and in and, and a, and a, and a good practice in a small conservative town. As I said, my dad voted for Goldwater in 64, was so repulsed by Nixon and Agnew that he changed to a Democrat in, um, eight years later. But I, more than anything, wanted to end the war. I was supporting McGovern, trying to help as an, an anti-war campaign, presidential campaign. And I, I, I saw these students from Yale that were it surged out of their dorms when Nixon announced mining the harbors at Haiphong, escalating the war. And they marched down um, Elm Street, I believe, and there were some police officers standing behind wood horses, the, the barriers, to say to the kids, you can't go any further. And they were yelling obscenities at the police officers. And I thought, you know, I don't know why this occurred to me as this kid from Mansfield, Ohio, these police officers I knew they weren't making a lot of money. I knew perhaps some of their kids were in Vietnam or they themselves had served in Vietnam. And I knew that most of my classmates that were walking down this street demonstrating and swearing at the cops, the cops who were there to protect the property of maybe some of these kids' parents, I don't know. But these kids marching down the street, most of them would have good cushy jobs a year or two later or go to law school or med school. And most of them weren't going to go to Vietnam. So even though I supported what they wanted to do in the war, I, I didn't feel in that group. I didn't, I didn't feel of that group at that time as I had marched against the war before. It just, it just, I, I, I can't really describe it very well, but there was something, something untoward about all of that. Last question. We can't let you go without asking you about the 2020 presidential election. We're one year away from election day and the New York times published a poll showing Trump basically tied with his Democratic challengers in the states that will decide the election. Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Florida, Arizona, and North Carolina. What's it going to take for the Democrats to carry most of those states? Democrats have got to start talking more about work, the dignity of work, uh, not just to talk to white male workers, some of whom might have voted for Trump, but to, but to energize young voters. There are a whole lot of people in this country that are that are people of color and women and young people who are making eight and ten and twelve dollars an hour and we've got to show as democrats we care about them we care that they're they're all working hard i mean most people in this country that are on food stamps and most of the people that gain from medicaid expansion are people working eight and ten and twelve dollars an hour they just aren't making enough money 
to, to get ahead. And Democrats have to be for them and with them to point out that Trump has betrayed them. Trump has refused to raise the minimum wage. He's taken overtime pay away from, we think, as many as 2 million Americans, 50 or 60,000 in my state alone. We know that Trump has put people on the courts that put their thumb on the scale of justice and choose corporations over workers and Wall Street over consumers. Uh, we know Trump has put in as the Secretary of Labor, of Labor, a corporate lawyer who's made tens of millions of dollars in his life fighting against workers. And Trump says he's for workers, but you can't be for workers individually if you're not for workers collectively. And Democrats have to make that contrast. If we do, we win the industrial Midwest, including my state. Sherrod Brown is the senior senator from Ohio. His terrific new book is Desk 88, Eight Progressive Senators Who Changed America. Thank you, Senator Brown. Thank you. What a fun interview. Thank you. I really appreciate it. One year before Election Day, the nation has taken a position on the Democratic primary. For that, we turn to the magazine's editor, D.D. Guttenplan. He was also one of the magazine's lead correspondents covering the 2016 presidential campaign. And he's the author of the book, The Next Republic, The Rise of a New Radical Majority. Don, welcome back. Great to be back, John. Well, instead of choosing between Bernie and Elizabeth Warren, the nation at this point in the campaign did something different. Please explain. Well, you know, like a lot of uh, organizations and people on the left, we've come under a certain amount of pressure to choose between Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. And, you know, we've, you and I have talked and we've written before that that's not a choice we feel we need to make right now. Uh, we feel that the presence of both of them in the, in the race is great, and it's widening the left lane, and they're, they're each in some ways reinforcing each other's messages and uh, acting as legitimators and also just taking up air and media time discussing things like Medicare for All and a Green New Deal and forgiving student debt. So we're, we're happy with that. But we decided that, that we did need to take a stand and to weigh in on the Democratic field, and we, we wrote and published what we call an anti-endorsement, whose title pretty much explains it, against Biden. And uh, we laid out in that editorial our reasons why we think Joe Biden ought to put service to country ab above personal ambition and drop out of the Democratic race now. Well, Biden, of course, is called a moderate, along with Mayor Pete and Amy Klobuchar and Kamala Harris, is the nation anti-endorsing them also for the same reasons as Biden? Well, you know, I don't want to use moderate as a dirty word. And in fact, in the editorial, we say that, that we think whoever the nominee is, is going to need to have good answers to the kind of criticisms that Amy Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg have been making, not that we're necessarily persuaded by them, but we, we feel that they need to be addressed and answered in a way that will be persuasive to, you know, the, the American public. Because after all, what we want is a nominee who can not only win the Democratic primaries, but who can evict Donald Trump from the White House. At this point, it's not so much Biden's positions that we feel disqualify him. It's his record. And it's his record going back quite a long way. You know, not just things like happily working with segregationists to oppose school busing or his, in some ways, deeply consequential mishandling of Anita Hill's, you know, accusations of sexual harassment against Clarence Thomas. 
or his role in, in, in ramming through the bill that led to the explosion of mass incarceration, you know, the Clinton crime bill, or his opposition to measures to liberalize bankruptcy for people who are driven into bankruptcy by credit card debt. There's a lot in, in Biden's record not to like, but in a sense, it's not just the record. It's that as an opponent to Donald Trump, we feel that Joe Biden is a uniquely weak candidate and that his presence in the race, and this is not our coinage, but it's a coinage that I have to say I, I've liked enough to steal as a kind of zombie candidate, means he sucks oxygen and money and attention away from candidates whose positions are probably not that different from his. And, you know, Amy Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg are, are two perfectly good examples, but who don't have uh, the record that renders them uniquely weak against Donald Trump. You know, they can, they can raise issues of corruption and uh, the, the way in which Trump puts his relatives into positions for which they're unqualified without having to then spend hours talking about Hunter Biden. Of course, some of our friends say the most important thing about Biden is that the polls show him doing better than his rivals, Bernie or Elizabeth Warren, if the election were held today. Washington Post poll, for instance, came out last week, rated A-plus by 538.com. Uh, its current finding is that Biden would beat Trump 56% to 39%, while Elizabeth Warren would beat him 55 to 40, and Bernie would beat him 55 to 41. Wouldn't it be better to beat Trump 56 to 39 than 55 to 40? <laughs> well, we both know that's a silly argument. I mean, first of all, we're a year out from the election, and year-out polls, as you know, Nate Silver would be the first to tell you, mainly register name recognition. So, you know, and Biden has been vice president for eight years, so he has a lot of name recognition. But the second thing, and this is, this is, I think, in some ways a more substantive point. Look, we at the nation definitely want a candidate who can beat Donald Trump. And that's one of the reasons why we feel that the issues debate, which in some ways is being stifled by all the attention given to Burisma and Biden and his connections to the Ukraine and his son's jobs. We feel that it would be much better to have the debate among the Democrats about the things that are going to matter in November and not about those things, which all those things do is they, they provide Republicans with talking points if Joe Biden ends up being the nominee. And if he's not the nominee, and we're pretty sure he's not going to be the nominee, then what they do is they just keep the Democrats from subjecting the field to the kind of tests that it needs to be subjected to. You know, there are, there are worthy candidates who have Joe Biden's views on a lot of the issues, but who aren't getting the oxygen because he's sucking all the oxygen up. And there are candidates of color who might be in the top tier if it weren't for the fact that, you know, Joe Biden's loyalty to Obama has uh, inspired a kind of reciprocal loyalty among African-American voters. So those are two points we think are worth thinking about. But there's something else that I want to talk about, and that's this notion of electability, because I covered the 2016 campaign for the nation. And at some point during that campaign, I wrote a piece which we never published called Is Hillary Electable? It was written in opposition to and out of irritation with the kind of mainstream view that Hillary was an ideal candidate and that electability was the thing that mattered most. And, you know, first of all, I never thought that was going to work. I thought that there were a lot of issues that, particularly around economic inequality and trade policy and the gutting of America's industrial infrastructure, and even on sexual harassment, where because it was Hillary, 
Trump was kind of immunized from having to really be accountable for his actions. And I feel like it would be it would be terrible to repeat that mistake in 2020, and for me, unconscionable to be silent again while the Democratic Party sleepwalks into another disaster of that kind. Well, let me go back for a minute to the African-American voters you mentioned. Of course, they're the bedrock base of support for Joe Biden, who, as you say, remember his ties to Obama. Those voters are very clear they don't want Mayor Pete. They don't seem to be very strong for Bernie or Elizabeth Warren, and they don't show much interest in Kamala Harris or Cory Booker. So, How do we know who their second choice would be if Biden weren't there? I mean, I, I've seen some polls that say quite a lot of them, you know, list Bernie as their second choice. I see others that say that they list Cory Booker as their second choice. I think in a way it's, it's hard to get people to focus on a hypothetical, which is why I suppose the question you might ask about our editorial is why preempt the process? And, and my answer is that the process has a flaw in that there's going to be corporate money flowing to Biden for as long as he wants to stay in the race. And as long as corporate money is flowing to him, he has less incentive to drop out. But if he drops out late, if he collapses in the polls, but he doesn't collapse in the polls until February and his money dries up in February or March, Harris, or more to the point, Booker or Joaquin Castro may not last that long. You listed many of Biden's weaknesses, flaws, and problems. Are you saying Joe Biden is a crook? We say very clearly in the editorial that he's not a crook. But there's another piece in the same issue that talks about something called the Delaware Way. And it looks a lot like what they used to call in Tammany Hall days legal graft. In other words, none of it's illegal. There's no allegation of criminality. But it, A, doesn't look good, and B... It's a kind of reciprocal favor arrangement with corporate interests that make you a particularly weak candidate at a moment when there's popular outrage against the 1% and against the millionaire and billionaire class. Last question. When will it be time to choose between Bernie and Elizabeth Warren for The Nation magazine? Well, that's a really good question. I suppose one answer would be as we come out of Iowa and New Hampshire, and we see where they are. I mean, we we may never have to choose because one of them may be doing so much better than the other that it's obvious which one is going to be the nominee. Or if we're going into the spring and they're still going neck and neck, uh, we may have to choose. Or, of course, we may have to consider the argument, which people don't consider, I think, only on ageist grounds, of a Sanders-Warren or a Warren-Sanders ticket. Those are all reasonable questions, but they're not questions we have to answer right now. We've been speaking with D.D. Guttenplan. He's editor of The Nation. We've been talking about the magazine's anti-endorsement of Joe Biden. You can read it now at thenation.com. Thank you, Don. Always great to have you on the show. Thanks, John. The Supreme Court is supposed to provide a check on Congress and the president to protect our rights. But we all know about the Supreme's decisions in Citizens United, which permits unlimited campaign contributions by billionaires and corporations, and the refusal to enforce the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And let's not forget Bush v. Gore, just to take a few recent examples. Can anything be done about the Supreme Court? For that, we turn to Tom Hartman. Of course, he's host of one of our most important talk shows, Talkers Magazine has listed him in the top 10 for more than a decade. 
He's also a best-selling and award-winning author of 24 books translated into 17 languages. His new book is The Hidden History of the Supreme Court and the Betrayal of America. Tom Hartman, it's an honor and a pleasure to say welcome to the program. Well, thank you, John. It's an honor and a pleasure to be here with you. Okay, we didn't like the court's decisions in the Citizens United case or the Voting Rights Act. That one was called Shelby County versus Holder. But we did like Brown versus Board of Education, which declared segregated schools unconstitutional in 1954. We did like Roe v. Wade, which gave constitutional protection to abortion rights in 1973. We liked the more recent rulings on gay marriage and Obamacare. So... Our problem is not with the court as an institution. It's with the current political makeup of the court. Everybody knows the court is political. So isn't the solution a simple one? Elected Democratic president and three more Democratic senators in 2020. Wouldn't that solve our problems with the court? Well, uh, probably not for uh, 15, 20, maybe 30 years. (laughs) They've been packing the court with young conservatives. Um, but there are a number of people involved in the uh, abortion rights movement who would point out to you that by the late 60s, early 70s, a women's rights movement had kicked off in a really big way. Uh, A number of states had decriminalized abortion, and um, had the Supreme Court not inserted itself with the Roe v. Wade decision, and then later with uh, Planned Parenthood v. Casey, in which uh, the court actually made law. They created law. They, they defined three trimesters and all these things, which is clearly not in the definition of the Supreme Court in the Constitution. Had that not happened, and had the process organically happened over the course of the next decade, and it was really moving in that direction. I mean, I'm, I'm old enough to remember that time. Had it, had it happened more organically, uh, we probably wouldn't be in the problem, the situation we have right now, where you've had this 40 years of an insanely activated grievance-driven anti-abortion movement, it simply would have been adjudicated in the court of public opinion, you know, state by state. And yeah, there may still be states that have abortion illegal, but I'm guessing that the pressure uh, by this time would be so great that that wouldn't be the case. Um, So, you know, even even the things that we look to the court and say it wasn't that wonderful have very often been not necessarily so. Uh, the, The question fundamentally, John, is are we a constitutional democracy or a constitutionally limited representative democratic republic, to be technical, or are we a constitutional monarchy? And when, when the government was set up initially, it was set up as a, as a constitutional democracy. Um, in 1803, in the Marbury decision, when the Supreme Court decided that they were more powerful and could strike down laws made by Congress and signed by the president, that they were the supreme branch of government. You know, basically what they did is they flipped us into becoming a constitutional monarchy. But the reaction to that in 1803, Jefferson's reaction to it was so violent and and the whole country was so upset about it that uh, John Marshall, who was on the court longer as a a chief justice than any other chief justice, never again went to judicial review. He never again did that. And in fact, the second time it happened in the first 80 years of American history, was in 1856 when Chief Justice Roger Taney thought he would solve the slavery problem once and for all in a decision called Dred Scott v. Sanford. And of course that led right to the Civil War. So the history of the Supreme Court taking upon themselves the the power and ability to strike down laws made by Congress or 
um, as in the case of Roe v. Wade or or others, you know, frankly, uh, that that are much less palatable to us. Uh, writing law, uh, that history is is a fraught history, and and it really only the court really only started doing this in the 1880s when um, you know three or four members of the court were being aggressively bribed by the railroad uh, chief justice or by the railroad. Uh, uh, barons. When I was writing Unequal Protection back in 2001, we got into the John Chandler, or the uh, excuse me, the uh, Morrison Remick Waite uh, archives in the National Archives, and he was the Chief Justice in the 1880s and 1886 in the Santa Clara County case uh, that that uh, history tells us gave us corporate personhood. And um, in those archives, we found the actual correspondence with Stephen J. Field, the uh, the Supreme Court Justice in California, who was also on the Ninth Circuit, and Jay Gould basically bribing him, and you know to 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 get corporate personhood, and in exchange for that, Jay Gould was going to support his uh, run for the presidency in 1892. So uh, that was the era when the court started inserting itself aggressively, repeatedly in every session, using this uh, excuse of well, we're interpreting the Constitution. And, you know, which led us to Plessy and led us to, to, and that's pretty much all the court does now. So we are very much no longer a constitutional democracy. We are now a constitutional monarchy where the monarchs have actually more power than most of the monarchies of Europe. Well, the basic principle behind judicial review, as I understand it, was that the founding fathers feared what they called the excesses of democracy, majorities taking away rights from minorities whites forcing blacks into inferior schools. These are examples from our lifetimes. Capitalists putting communists in jail in the 50s, Christians deporting Muslims after 9-11. Haven't those been real problems in our country? They have, and, and you know, some of them were literally written into the Constitution. They were the way that people wanted things. Um, people, uh, you know, when, when Marbury was decided in 1803, uh, John Marshall struck down part of the Judiciary Act of 1797, and uh, Thomas Jefferson was president. And he went nuts and he said, under this decision, if the Supreme Court can, can undo what Congress has done and what the president has done, under this decision, the Constitution has become a thing of wax to be molded in the hands of the judiciary. Um, in a letter to Abigail Adams, he said, you know, under this decision, the Constitution has become a suicide pact. Um, in a letter to to, uh, to George Mason, he said, uh, the, John Marshall has made the Supreme Court the most despotic of the branches. Somebody wrote him a letter saying, well, if the, if the Supreme Court doesn't determine what the Constitution means, um, who does? And Jefferson responded with three words. He said, the people themselves. And uh, what Jefferson said was, basically, if Congress passes laws that are patently, nakedly unconstitutional and the president signs them, it's up to the people to throw those bums out. It's not up to the Supreme Court to fix it. We are not a monarchy. And during World War One, when Woodrow Wilson got the second Alien and Sedition Act passed and started throwing people like you and me in jail, people who were, who were speaking out against the war, World War One, and literally he was throwing them in jail. The Supreme Court said, oh, that's fine. In Karamatsu, when, when Franklin Roosevelt was putting Japanese in internment camps, the Supreme Court said, oh, that's fine. I mean, the Supreme Court has far more often been the agent of wealth, power, privilege, segregation, you know, you go through the list of, of social political evils, then they have, by, by a huge margin, you know, destroying the rights of labor, then they have 
on behalf of the rights of human beings and the, and the rights of uh, and, and human rights. Okay, you've, you've convinced me. We have huge problems with the court. What is to be done? FDR tried something called court packing. What is court packing, and is it legal? Uh, yes, it's legal. Article 3, Section 2 of the Constitution says that the Supreme Court shall be regulated by Congress. And one of the main ways Congress regulates the Supreme Court is by deciding how many members it has. So FDR said, we're going to have this deal where every member who's over 70 years old becomes a member emeritus. He's still on the court. He can still participate. We're not kicking him off the court. Um, That would be unconstitutional. But all of them in aggregate, there were five of them at the time, they have one vote. And then to fill the other four votes, I'll add four more members to the court. He had huge support for that, and FDR probably would have succeeded if Justice Owens and Justice Roberts didn't, within a week of each other, change all their votes and start voting with with the FDR. It would be like Sam Alito and, and Clarence Thomas suddenly deciding to become liberals. That's what happened in 37. And at that point, there was no longer any need to pack the court, and so FDR just said, screw it, you know, we'll just move on. So that's something that could be done, and that's one way it could be done. It, it has been done. Uh, the court, the number of members of the court has been changed for purely political purposes. All right. That's what has been called court packing, increasing the number of justices, perfectly reasonable, perfectly legal. You describe something else I had never heard of called court stripping. You call it the ultimate nuclear option. What is court stripping? Article 3, Section 2 says that they shall operate under regulations and with exceptions defined by Congress. In 1980, when Reagan became president, or 81, he hired a young lawyer to come into the Reagan Justice Department and gave him an office in a year and said, figure out how we can overturn Roe v. Wade and Brown versus Board, because those are the promises we made to our base. And But we're not going to be able to do it with a constitutional amendment, so figure out how we can do it some other way. And this young lawyer went back to Jefferson's writings and Hamilton's writings and all this stuff, and he said, well, it's really obvious. The, our, our Article 3, Section 2 says that Congress can define exceptions under which the Supreme Court may not rule. So all we have to do is pass a law that says that um, uh, states can criminalize abortion if they choose, and states can have segregated schools if they want. And then add a sentence to the end of that law that says, and this law may not be reviewed by the Supreme Court. Wow. That's all we have to do. Wow. Ultimately, they decided that they didn't have enough political capital. They didn't have a large enough majority in Congress to be able to even try this, and so it got shelved. And 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 that's where it sat until I discovered it a few months ago, when I was or a year ago, when I was writing the book. That young lawyer, by the way, his name was John Roberts, and he's currently the Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. Tom Hartman, his amazing new book is "The Hidden History of the Supreme Court and the Betrayal of America." Thank you, Tom. This has been great. Thanks, John. Great talking with you. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. The theme music for our podcast is by Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is the nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of the nation. 
Katrina Vandenhoevel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.